Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Is the whole UFO scenario a cover for secret government activities? Is it a cover for someone else's activities? How can we tell the difference? Hello there, and welcome to the 361st broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And those unexpected questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So tonight we're back in Rendlesham, uh, England's Rendlesham Forest for a very different look at the 1980 UFO encounters with a retired member of the U.S. Air Force who was right in the middle of it all. He has a very different take on the incident from what we usually hear. But first, it's time for our weekly paranormal contest. So last week's question was, when was the last time that a fleet of UFOs was seen over Japan? Our faithful listener, Martin Short from London, was the first to get that one. Martin gets a lot of questions, right? Uh, In February 2011... Not long before the March 11th earthquake and tsunami, uh, the, fl- the so-called fleet of UFOs, or at least lights, was seen over Japan. Now, as I say, I think Martin's won more, more of our contests than anyone else over the years. Anyway, these groupings of lights in the sky were seen flying over a large part of the country, leading to speculation that they either caused the quakes or were caused by the quakes. Uh, in the latter case, they could have been the so-called earthquake lights, and people really don't know how those work. Lab experiments have been able to create them, but only uh, for a second uh, on a smaller scale, so who knows what they really are. All right, so this week's question is, on what island would you find the Chick Charney? Is that, is that, how, is that it? Is that, yeah, okay. I, that's just as good as any other way of pronouncing it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how sp- I'm just saying how it's spelled, uh, Chick Charney. Yeah. So uh, be first to get that right. And uh, win a copy of Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny, my dad's most recent book. And we do welcome callers this evening. Our phone number is locally or from Canada, 401-766-1240, or from outside the area or anywhere in the USA, 800-449-1240. Now to our guest, Monroe Nevels, a familiar name to and voice to most of the older listeners of the show, uh, now retired from the U.S. Air Force, was a staff sergeant and disaster preparedness technician stationed at the twin NATO bases of RAF Woodbridge and RAF Bentwaters in December 1980 during what is considered one of the most significant, perhaps the most significant series of UFO incidents in modern history. Uh, There were reports of landings and contacts between Air Force personnel, even high-ranking officers, and someone else. Staff Sergeant Nebels, 32 years old at the time and a Vietnam veteran who had previously served in the Marine Corps, uh, was with Deputy Base Commander Colonel Charles Halt and others on the famous second night of what became known as the Rendlesham Forest Incident. His voice is heard along with Halt's on the world-famous tape recording Halt uh, made that night when they followed one of the UFOs at ground level through the forest and witnessed other, witnessed other strange phenomena. Monroe did not appear live during our 16-hour series on this case, which aired on CBS Radio and Achieve Radio in 2010, but he has been on the show twice recently as part of our effort to hear from witnesses who have not been widely heard from. Uh, by the way, uh, that series, Rendlesham series, is available in podcast form on our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com. So, Monroe Nevels, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you. Oh, you are most welcome. So, first of all, uh, we'd like to thank you for your service to us, to your country. And uh, one of the reasons you are so interesting is that you have an entirely different idea about what people saw over and around the NATO bases uh, those three or four nights. Uh, but first, can you review the events on that second night for us? 
Well, basically, the only involvement I had was on the twenty-eight, the night of the twenty-eight, and and what happened was I got a, a knock on the door at my base uh, housing uh, by uh, uh, England, and he was working. Uh, uh, Bruce England was the, uh, the, I guess, the security police chief that night on duty. But anyway, he came to my house. Um, uh, Monroe. Uh, could yes. you speak? Could you speak up just a little bit? I've got a my, my bunch of New Englanders around here who aren't used to your Texas accent. Oh, that's probably not. I thought everybody knew about Texas accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, basically, what was happening is I got a notification from uh, Bruce, uh, Lieutenant Bruce Singleton at the time, uh, security policeman on duty, was called to, uh, came to my house on our bent border Woodbridge base. I was on Woodridge Base. Uh, it's a Sunday afternoon, uh, the night of the 28th, and I guess it was probably in the neighborhood around about 3.30, 4 o'clock. The reason I say that is because at that time, uh, my wife uh, was over at the chapel in uh, on Bentwaters, and they were doing a function over there. We talked for quite a while. He looked in, went through my house and checked everything to make sure no one was in there informed me that what we were talking about at the time was top secret and uh, commenced to tell me that uh, 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 the base commander uh, called me anyway, sent him over there and he wanted to talk to me because he said that he felt that if I'd go out and take a look on uh, on the sighting that I would give him uh, my own opinion that would not be based on all the facts going on around me. And so we went out, uh, initially it was just Bruce England and myself. And on the way out, he talked to me about, uh, the, what, what they had seen, what, the, uh, on that, uh, previous sighting, the initial sighting. But anyway, we went into the East Gate and went over to the site. And he stayed in, I told him to stay in, in the Jeep, just let, after he showed it to me and just let me go around and do my own investigation. At that time, I didn't. I, the only thing I knew about a UFO was that it was an unidentified flying object, which could mean anything from a hammer to a glass in space. But uh, anyway, uh, so I went out with an unbiased opinion, took a look at it, found the three indent- indentations that had been in the ground, uh, all of which were, uh, in, in my experience as a photographer, looked like just just like a tripod had sat down on the ground. It was uneven on the fourth floor, and, of course, you had a lot of uh, debris and, and, you know, the fine needles and everything from uh, trees and all. But as I looked at it, they were all, uh, uh, it was uneven to the point that the ground was kind of almost like in a small uh, uh, indentation going down down into the road. But the, the prints were all the same, and each one of Three out, three footprints. They all were about the same size. I looked around as I was, I was going about trying to find out some things, and to me it appeared that no trees had been knocked down, or tree limbs knocked down recently. So it was starting to get dark. We went back. Uh, he told me that we we were being sent by uh, Conrad, who was the uh, base commander, and we went back and uh, to see him. He was at the officers' club, and they were having a uh, you know, their uh, festivities for uh, Christmas and uh, New Year's. So we were back there. He went back and uh, 
notified the commander, commander come out. We were all kind of scrungy, so there's nobody want to be around us after being out in the woods like that. We talked to the commander. He asked me one question. Uh, Monroe, do you, uh, Sergeant Neville, do you think it's worth, uh, worth going to take a bigger look at? And I said, most definitely, sir, it is. So he carried, we went back into the room where they were, and a group of officers sitting around celebrating, and, of course, we had the security policeman, chief, security police chief, uh, and all the important officials that were involved. He briefly stated to them that uh, I had been out there on looking at the site. I had picked out some things I thought were worthy of notation and to go back out and take a look. And he asked me if I was willing to go back out on the team uh, and let uh, uh, Colonel Hall, now I'm a lieutenant colonel, but he, uh, he said yes. I told him we were ready to go. So at that time, Colonel Hall asked me about going out there, and he took me by the base, uh, my office over on the headquarters, and I picked up my radiac instrument, AMPDR-43E, and a couple other tools to take with me. I had my camera for because I was a photographer. And we went out to the field uh, afterwards, and uh, Colonel Hall uh, showed me kind of what was going on. Now, he had carried uh, uh, the tape recorder that's widely known now and it was only a 30 minute tape he did not know how much time he had left on the tape uh, and didn't want to uh, try to overload it first at the first time so after that we we started going uh, through the scene and I had uh, I, uh, by that time the night off had arrived so we could see uh, you know the ground pretty easy and, and around that area I had done a background search on with my radiac meter just to make sure uh, I was getting a proper reading when I went in to do the testing. And as I went in to the site, we looked uh, looked at several things. I took the probe out and checked it against the uh, tracks on the ground, uh, and the, lo and behold, the meter started moving. As I moved further around to each, each one of the uh, indentations, all three of them, had the same reading, which was rather low at the time. And it was in the uh, 0.5 area of the, of the radiac meter, which is the very lowest. As I proceeded to check around the field in that area, uh, I noticed that the trees had bark on them uh, that had been burned. It looked as though if you took up just a light and hung it on the, uh, from a string, and spin it, and it went around at the same distance all the way, making a touch with each one of those limbs. And they had been charred, and like kind of like charcoal. So we looked at it. I took my meter and started get some readings on it. I pulled off the uh, cover for the beta probe and checked it out. Uh, I had checked all the readings, and we got considerably higher. And, and we then, at that point, went into the five uh, scale on there. In other words, we had jumped one level up on the, on the radiac meter. Mm-hmm. So at that time, Colonel Hall was making his uh, notation of what was going on. We saw a light in the field, took off after it, and the next thing I knew, we were facing the second farmer's field over in the uh, farmland. And from there, we started doing our work. And uh, we had noted that, that earlier, there had been a lot of loud noise uh, with all the farm animals just going crazy. And all of a sudden, it was still. It was, I mean, you could have heard 
not only a pin drop, I think it's something landed very softly like a fruit uh, pine needle would hit, you could have heard it. And this was going into around, I guess probably by that time, about 10 o'clock or 11 p.m., you know, sometime in that area. Okay. And, and from there, hello, I'm getting static. There's your radiac meter. You never hello? turned it off. Hello? Yeah, so are you yeah, there? I was getting a lot of static in there all of a sudden. Yeah, well, that happens when we cover this topic. Right. And uh, anyway, uh, we got started with that, and, uh, you know, from there on it was history. And my perception of going in was not looking for anything like a spaceship or anything like this. I just went in looking to see what it was. And I had a theory that I'd later related to the commander, which I'll speak of later. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I was I was in close hands right along with Colonel Halt. I was, uh, like we were practically together the whole time that we were out there in the field. And uh, he was, in fact, uh, my uh, Colonel Conrad was my uh, endorsement official, and he was, uh, you know, he was just out there with us, and I knew him quite well, you know, from some of the other things I'd done because I worked with the base commander. But. In, in the meantime, what was going on was a lot of chaos. Uh, everybody was trying to get on the same note. We had three radios out there, three radio uh, frequencies, I should say. And things were happening so fast, so quick, that the normal eye, or if you wasn't looking for it, you would never notice what was happening. It was that quick. Okay. Right. But... Uh, I can go further if you want, or take a break uh, and see what you. Uh, no, we're okay. We uh, on this show we only have one break. The, the right. ones you've been on before, we had three. So we, we've got uh, this is a, a rather a luxury. So please continue. Right. Okay. Well, what we found out there when we went to the farmer's field, a bunch of us going out there, and it was cold, being in December, and they were puddles in the, on the ground level that were, uh, you know, probably a creek bed. We couldn't see too well, so but the we noticed that the moon was really, really bright that night. And so yeah, we had a pretty good uh, landing where, you know, where we could step, where we could go, whatever. But when we saw the, uh, the light over on the farmer's field off to our left, it was probably, I'd say, probably about 200, 200 yards or so. And what was going on, it, it was just sitting there, and it looked to be, at first, it looked like it was just plain yellow. But then I noticed it was different colors with uh, red in, in, you know, yellow flashing with red and maybe some blue. I don't know for that for sure. But what I did see was the sparks that were flying off. It appeared to be like a pot sitting there with, with, uh, that had been heated up in an iron, iron pot to the point that it was bubbling over. And, and the spill, uh, the, the sparks and the, and the little bits were popping off of it. And it was actually looked like it was landing on the ground. And I, and I mentioned that to Colonel Hall. I said, you know, it looks like it's a yellow, yellowish color out there, and it looks like something has dropped off. And so we decided we'd try to go over. And Colonel Hall asked me, you know, he said, well, you think we can go over? I said, well, let's try it. So we went over the fence, and as we got over the fence, it started moving, and it moved toward us. And all of a sudden, it was gone. It disappeared. And no one could find it. Uh, we looked around inside, looked all over, and I looked up in the sky and thought I saw three lights. So to be sure, I laid down on my back so that I wouldn't be distorted, 
and looked up, and as I did, the three objects had uh, one one brighter one in front, with two less bright in the uh, in behind it. And what we saw, incidentally, in that area was the fact that it was just uh, uh, sitting there, and one of them started to move, the one in front. And as I pointed it up, Colonel Hall was recording what I was saying. We were talking about it, and they disappeared all of a sudden. And we were listening on the radio channel, and it turned out that they had moved from Woodbridge over to Bentwater, which was only about six miles or so, maybe eight, but uh, apart. But they disappeared, and the chatter came from the radios over there saying that they saw it. And less than a minute later, they were back over on our section at Woodbridge. And we continued to follow these lights, and they would disappear, or they were interchangeable between the both bases. We looked out, and it looked like, or appeared to be, like they were over a bump uh, over the, the weapon storage area. And it looked as though, from my sighting, that it was about maybe a 1,000 feet up in the air. And the reason I say a 1,000, because I flew a lot with helicopters, and I knew that, you know, basically about how far it would be from the ground. So we looked over, and we saw these telescoping lights. And it was unknown, for me at least, in that area of lasers. And what we would call now laser beam is exactly what that light looked like. And I made mention to Colonel Hall that it being a normal light, it would have been, would have went out in an angle, and it would have been, you know, uh, not one straight line. Right. And these were piped, literally piped in, and you could barely see them. If you were looking, you could pinpoint them. And one went down, I know, over the weapon storage area, and also we uh, they popped down uh, uh, near our feet because I was standing with Colonel Hall. He was recording, and the light popped out one time. I, I'll just say laser light for, you know, for the fact that the, what we're talking about. But anyway, that laser beam hit the ground and moved around a little bit, and then it was gone. Okay. Well, let me just explain one thing to the listeners here, if I can interrupt you here for a second, Monroe. Uh, The weapon storage area at the base, uh, this is one of the most controversial aspects of the case because... It was. Uh, it is generally believed that nuclear weapons were stored there, that which would have been a violation of treaty with the United Kingdom. But there, this and in, in this and many other cases, UFOs have supposedly been, and this has been reported by high-ranking officers, uh, over weapon storage areas, shining lights uh, such as Monroe was just described down onto the areas, and supposedly uh, messing with the nuclear weapons that were inside the bunkers. Now, again, nobody knows this for sure, but supposedly weapons uh, in various places, including uh, this this one, had been uh, deactivated or retargeted or whatever, depending on whom you talk to. So that's that's the context of this. And uh, one wonders if some of the secrecy uh, involved was not because of these weapons. But, okay, go ahead, Monroe. I'm sorry to interrupt. That's fine. Well, at the time, everything was top secret because it wasn't that we were uh, the base or uh, I don't think was hiding anything, but we were in the Cold War. We were practicing all the time uh, as my job in disaster preparedness uh, technician was to, I trained a lot of the team members. And most of the team members that, that I had trained were out there, uh, you know, watching. We were always looking for nuclear weapons. And our simulation was always that a C-141 or something would 
aircraft was flying with a brake uh, problem and uh, light, couldn't get the gear down and had a nuclear weapon on board. So our job was to practice in the event that that uh, vehicle crashed, that aircraft uh, land, uh, you know, crash landed, then we would know how to take care of it, not just uh, the listed officers. The officers, the listed, and everybody involved would be were trained in this. So we did this frequently on our event waters. In fact, we we had a uh, major exercise just about every three months. Okay. And a lot of practice, a lot of training went into that. But well, all right. The, okay. okay what, if I could, if I could just uh, point out one more thing for the listeners, uh, there is this tape that we've referred to. Uh, the one the, the it's known as the halt tape or the Colonel Hall tape is available all over the internet, particularly YouTube. And um, this is the tape that Monroe has been referring to that was made during this, uh, well, as you say, probably less than a half hour period when you were pursuing this light through the through the forest. Um, th- that um, so it is available. So, and I suppose if you Google the halt tape or something like that, you'll find uh, access to this anyway. So, but it is uh, very much uh, available. Okay, go ahead, Monroe. Sorry. Okay. Anyway, from this point. Uh, after we had the, the lights were in the air, we, we very, very closely observed them, and it, it looked to me like they were observing us. And we stayed out there almost until morning. It was really cold, we, and I personally didn't even look at the, what time it was because I had my mind focused otherwise. And I had a habit of watching my watch, but that night I didn't quite feel like looking to see what time it was. I do know that in the process of us being out there, that the hair on the top of my neck, around my neck, was, was just tingling. I was scratching my neck all night. And that was because of either some electrostatic uh, activity going on or something that was already in the area. Huh. And when I went out there the first time with uh, Colonel uh, England, I mean, Lieutenant England, when we went out there, there was no, no sign of anything to, to bother you. Until, until we reached the landing site, and when we released that area, then all of a sudden, uh, you know, you'd feel that tingling sensation around, like skin on your arm, the hair on your arm and neck was really bugging. You. And as we had started back that night, in fact, I didn't cover that. We had started back after uh, Colonel. Eng- uh, I'm saying, get my rank now, Lieutenant England. When we started back. Uh, noticed that we saw something in over in the field, and I had one of those uh, night vision goggles. Now, uh, Colonel Halt has said that I had the uh, night scope. I didn't have a night scope. I had the original of uh, the I one of the original of the light, uh, you know, the uh, infrared reading lights that pilots wore on their neck. On their yeah, I remember face. those. <laughs> And I'm trying to get bad too much in too quick, I guess, and I kind of get behind. But uh, what I'm trying to say is that the night vision goggles were what I had. And as I looked across the, uh, at the object with these vision night vision goggles, they uh, proceeded to brighten up real quick, and it looked like a, uh, an eyeball sitting there and just in one spot, and it was slow light coming on and off. Now, I could focus on it and if, in the, we were riding in a jeep as long as we stayed on the road and in the jeep nothing happened all i could see was just the blackness and it looked like uh, the uh, uh black spot in your eye and it would get broader and brighter and brighter 
But when I stepped out of the out of the jeep onto the ground to look or to go in, it really started acting up and got brighter. So it was like this thing knew you were there, right? And if we step as I stepped back into the jeep, it calmed down. And eventually, you know, we just left, but we stayed there and observed this for about 30 minutes. And wow. nothing, you know, and I had to explain to uh, Lieutenant England that, that you know, that uh, Colonel Conrad had sent me out there for that mission. And I begged him not to bother me, just to let me sit there, let me make my own observations with no input from anybody else. That's just the way I work. When I got finished with all this, we went back, and, of course, I told uh, Colonel Hall about it and uh, Conrad and all the people in there. So we had a, a vision of what we were looking for, and folks tried to bring up this thing about a lighthouse. And I'll, I'll say this, I've been around, had been around at that time, uh, airplanes and, and, and uh, towers on the, you know, out on, on the uh, landing uh, roof. I've been around those. If you see them on any air, in face, you'll see them running over one of the top towers and when it does that you don't see it uh you know turn around and get real bright on one side and then pulsate as it's going around and then and do the things that it was doing that night right it's just a light a lighthouse is going to stick and stay in the ground where it's at never move and light's just going to turn from uh to those two colors bright you know white and uh i suppose green but yeah. this was not i can i can without question say that this was not the lighthouse. Okay, just for the sake of the listeners, um, uh, Monroe's referring to the Orford Ness Lighthouse, which was about, what, five miles away from this site? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, yes, on sir. the um, uh, North Sea. And many of the critics, and naturally uh, those who were not there, uh, said, aha, they must have seen the lighthouse. But, of course, these are highly trained officers and, and observers such as Monroe. So uh, we will, can we take the break now? Yes, yeah, sure, go for okay. it. We're going to take our commercial break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and com in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back. The grand opening celebration continues at Eastside Edibles, 987 Cass Avenue, Woonsocket. Out-of-the-ordinary edibles and custom gifts await you. How about this for out-of-the-ordinary? Herb-spiced infused chocolates or chocolate-covered dried fruit, plus coffee and tea from around the world. Stop in for free samples. Try the Eyes Wide Shut coffee, which is actually quite smooth, or Brazilian Santos coffee, which has a strong aroma but not a strong taste. Eastside Edibles is located at 987 Cass Avenue, next door to Kay's Restaurant. Call 401-837-4609 for information and check them out on Facebook. One visit to East Side Edibles and they will quickly become one of your favorite stores. And we ask you to check out Amazon Kindle and Amazon Kindle Fire, those marvelous e-reading devices that are catching on so marvelously now. They were the biggest thing going last Christmas, and I'm sure they're going to be the biggest thing going this Christmas as well. Get it for any holiday. Even if it was 4th of July, you just give it as gifts to people. Absolutely. Uh, we'll start the tradition, giving Kindles on the 4th of July. Yes. But that's over. However, we have, uh, well, as uh, Labor Day is coming and all sorts of wonderful birthdays, things of this kind, but check it out. It's Staples, certainly. Uh, Kindle uh, it can be had for as little as $79, and the Kindle Fire, which will give you millions, uh, I think at this point it's up to about 2 million books, apps, games, magazines, newspapers, anything you want to read in full color. 
and check it out. You can also get four of my books, uh, my last three on this subject, Faces at the Window, Footsteps in the Attic, and Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny. And also, if you're into history, Rhode Island, a genial history, which I wrote with Glenn Laxton of Channel 12 in the Providence area. And you can have a wonderful time with these things anywhere you go. You don't have to carry in your luggage huge numbers of books, things of this kind. And you literally download the book or the publication or the app or whatever right through the air as if, uh, I don't really understand it, as if you were using your cell phone or something like this. But it's really, really convenient, very light, pocket-sized, and you'll have a great time with it. Check it out at Staples That's, or Amazon.com, Kindle or Kindle Fire from Amazon. Okay, we're back behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM. And if you're stuck in traffic in Boston or Providence at this point, settle back and enjoy our visit with Monroe Nevels, one of the, as considered certainly one of the most credible witnesses uh, of all the military people who were present at Bentwaters uh, Air Base and um, Woodbridge Air Base in England in 1980, December, and also before and after, to talk about this very interesting UFO case that is known as Britain's Roswell. So, uh, why don't you go ahead, and, and if there's any more narrative, please go ahead, Monroe, and uh, after that we have some questions for you. Sure. Uh, I did note that one, uh, I was looking through my notes during the, uh, the uh, Mercer break, and one thing that was noted uh, after all this, we got back home, is that the, first of all, the commander asked me, if, uh, Conrad asked me if I would be willing to uh, keep an eye open for him for the next few days and see what happened. And about two days later, I guess it was, I was uh, my wife was driving the car, and we were come going, going back home to Woodbridge Bay, and in broad daylight, and I saw these big flashes of light, probably maybe five, uh, you know, coming across or coming toward us. It came so fast, I told my wife to stop. I was going to try to get some photos. We stopped, and it was gone, and I never saw anything more from that. And when Colonel Conrad had asked me uh, what my personal opinion of all this was, and I told him then, I said, I, you know, I said, sir, you know that in my classes what I teach is what I research and what I find. And I said, I have found uh, evidence that the, the Soviet Union then, not Russia, but the Soviet Union, had the capability of one of their satellites that could take the pictures in a, a beach uh, say like uh, Los Angeles Beach or Florida Beach, and from several hundred miles up or whatever it could take, I think it was more thousands of miles up in the air, could take pictures of, the, of that ground level in an eight, uh, like I think it was a four-inch diameter. They could take a picture and identify whether it was male or female, what color uh, uh, suit they were wearing, if it was a bikini or straight, or, you know, the regular uh, suit. I told him that, and he said, well, what do you think? I said, well, sir, I said, I don't know what a UFO is other than something I can identify. I said, I'm not a a sci-fi whiz. I just, you know, but I said, based on what I've seen and observed, that's what I think. And it wasn't, but maybe six months later, there was an article in the uh, Air Force Times, and it stated... uh, that uh, the Soviets, I think it was Air Force Times, or one of the base, you know, one of the papers, uh, started strife, and uh, they had said, told a story about the Soviet Union's satellite, and that kind of vindicated what I thought. But okay. over the years, my my opinion has become: what could it be? What was it? And 
Okay. Well, let, let me stop you there, Neville, because you're, le- uh, uh, you're leading right into uh, Ben's next question. And why, why don't we have, let him ask the question? And you can continue. Right? Yeah, yeah. You you started to answer it anyway, but um, I was I was gonna add, I was just gonna say like uh, for over thirty years now, uh, witnesses have been talking about UFOs, aliens, time travelers, and binary codes downloaded from strange craft from the future. Or even a deliberate hoax by the Air Force conducted as a psychological experiment. Uh, but your opinion is different than all of those things. So two things. Uh, what do you believe you saw, which you started to mention, and how do you feel about everyone else making these theories? Well, here's what I always say. You know, when I was, uh, as a Marine, I learned one thing. Uh, you know, exposed around other Marines that had been in combat, and et cetera. And the ones that had been there didn't talk about it too much. The ones that hadn't bragged about what they did and who they shot and how many people they killed, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And so what I felt like was that the, the people that had not been there have no idea what happened that night. No way no a human being can ever, uh, I can't even convey to them exactly what I felt because it's something that stuck with me these past 30-some-odd years. And it'll all it'll be here till I die. And yes, it was it was a phenomena that I can't explain. I did. I told the colonel later. I said, ask him. I said, well, let me ask you. I said, of all the weapons that you uh, aircraft that you have flown and been around, do you know any that can turn and stop on the time? I mean, stop less than a dime. I mean, stop on dot on the page, turn and reverse and go somewhere else. And of course, the answer is no. The next question is, if not then where does that technology come from? If it doesn't come from us, where does it come from? And I, I was with one of these people that like to ask questions. And if you can't tell me about what you, you know, you have something intelligent about it, but if you start talking about it off, off, off the cuff and you know this and you know that, most cases you don't know anything. And that's the way I looked at it. And so these people that kind of discredit what I say or anybody else, it doesn't hurt me, it doesn't affect me, but I don't have anything to gain from telling a lie no more than I do from telling the truth. And so, you know, I tell the truth, and I don't worry about it. But I know for the last 30-some-odd years I had been a bartender. And as a bartender, the pubs naturally, you know, it's uh, one of those pastimes when people want to talk something. And I would tell them about Bentwaters and Woodbridge and what I saw. And when the first uh, edition came out with CNN, uh, my wife and I were getting a divorce. She called me and asked me if I saw the program. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you were on it. And this was the one from CNN in uh, 1984. Oh, yeah. And I have not seen that one. But the one that we did in 2003, I got a call from a lady, uh, a letter, and, of course, I responded to it. And then still another one came through. So I've done three three different uh, stories, and each one of them is the same, except for the fact that one of them, uh, the one that was being done by, uh, I can't remember his name now, uh, Peter Jennings. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was. We did a real good one, and it was smashed. And they called back and said it wasn't going to be used. And the reason it wasn't is because it was so detailed by so many people. And hmm. I know that was disputed by the company themselves. So, so uh, okay. So over the years, have you, um, inc- or have you tried I mean, gathering any evidence to to back up 
the the idea that, that this was a, a, a Soviet craft or or no sir multiple craft okay no sir all right but you I know what I saw and that you know that's it I yeah can't, I can't even begin to theorize because okay it is so far above most people's heads I don't even think that there's been there's been speculation that the Air Force may have staged the whole thing to test the readiness of the particularly the security people at the bases, where as we've said, uh, nuclear weapons supposedly were stored. Uh, is it possible that the Soviets were doing the same thing? Possibly. Okay. Why 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 would uh I mean, you know, if you look, if we, if we look just just on the fact that they are, on all of our advanced weaponry, all of our advanced uh, technology with aircraft, bombs, etc., with what we've done in, in 30 years, let's say that, just for the last 30, say 35 years, even today we don't have technology to turn an aircraft the way they'll turn. Now, they'll turn, they'll turn. You know, Are we sure of that? On a quarter, but they won't turn on the dime, and they won't surely won't turn on the dotted eye on the page. Somewhere that technology came from, from the Air Force, I doubt it. From Navy, Marines, any, I doubt it. I don't know where that theory came from, but I will say this: it was real. It was as real as anything I have ever done in my life. Of course, I, we, I told someone before when and I was doing an interview with Colonel Hall, and I told him I said, "Look." I went out there not looking at the airplane. Everything we get on the base and our exercises, I did this spring. I didn't even do it as that way the Air Force wanted sometimes. Yeah. Because I considered their lives my responsibility. Okay. And so when I speak like that, that's what I speak on fact, not theory. All right. We're, I'm going to stop my questions for a minute because I want to get this in. This has been... This poor, this poor uh, listener has been waiting for an answer to this question, I think, probably for over a year. Sure. Uh, one previous time you were on the show, and we've never had a chance to ask it. And I want to stop now just so it, it can be asked. And this okay. is a question, question for you from Keith from Torbay, which is in Devonshire uh, in England. And uh, I'll give it to Ben here to read. All right. So Keith writes to us. Uh, on today... On today's show, uh, can you please ask Monroe Neville's uh, whereabouts in Rendlesham Forest was the landing site that he, Halt, Bell, and England investigated? The reason I ask is because uh, position uh, the position of the landing site has varied over the years. Uh, currently, John Burroughs and Jim Penniston talk about the site being at the same location where Larry Warren claims to have had his encounter. Yeah, these are all people we've had on the show before. Right. And, uh, anyway, but go ahead, Monroe. It's... Uh where uh, where did this occur? Okay, the one to, it occurred in the location in the, uh, inside the East Gate. That was with uh, the one that uh, uh, Larry Larry and uh, you know my mind could I'm just writing uh, the one that uh, it was the first site that was seen and not the one from Larry Warren. I do not know the exact around you know the locations of it. All I know is that Jim Peniston. And uh, you know, John, were they, we were we were not so much together out there on the site, but it's the one that they have uh, continually repeated. That is why when the CNN did this thing, and uh, uh, I think it was, and uh, they came up to the site, and Larry Warren said that it was another site, and finished them immediately 
declared that that no, that's not where he saw it. And mm-hmm. I would I would trust Jim Peniston over anybody right now. Jim Peniston and, and uh, John Burroughs uh, now have become friends of mine. And I don't say it because we're friends, but I can tell I know their integrity. I knew it then. I talked to them in classes. I know their integrity, and it was above anybody that I know. Yeah. Okay. So I would go. I would tell you without any question at all is that the site inside the gate that uh, they're talking about continually is not the one that Larry Warren speaks of. So I don't know what Larry Warren has said and what he's done because I haven't kept up with it. Yeah. But I do keep up with what's going on. Well, over the course of all our work, yeah, well, over the course of all our coverage of this case, all you fellas have become our friends, including Larry and uh, John and, and Jim. And matter of fact, Larry will be meeting us at Rendlesham in two months when we're over there to speak, and uh, we'll see what we see what there is to see. But uh, of course, even Colonel Halt has said that. Uh, these uh, he said on this show th- that these fellows, uh, including perhaps implying perhaps yourself, were messed with by intelligence personnel or security personnel. You know, after this incident occurred, to the to the best of your knowledge, were you ever messed with? In Colonel Halt's words, well, I don't think I was uh, quote me- uh, messed with as far as the uh, level that uh, say some of the other folks have been. What I did do know is that I had I had my APRs, which uh, Airman Performance Report, up to that time had been passed by that time, say twelve years, last in twelve years had been nine, eight, nine and eight most of the time, and that was uh, nine is the best you could go, being that eight is one drop down. But after that incident, I was rushed off of bench quarters. I had already re- I had signed up for another year. And I had to come home for a fight. Uh, my stepfather had gotten killed. And when I got back over there, my bags were just about packed because they told me I had to leave, and I had to leave from there quickly. So I left in 82 instead of 83 or 84. Hmm. And consequently, they put on my record that I was airbacked out of there because of my daughter's health, and it couldn't be taken care of in England. My daughter didn't have any health problems at that time. And a lot of they tried to call me, you know, get tipple and everything else they could call me in my record. So I just told them, take this job and shove it. <laughs> it don't mean nothing to me. Yeah. And I got out, and I never looked back. Well, as Larry Warren uh, said, he he points out that most of the other fellows, including yourself, uh, stayed in the service. He himself did not. And he said that... that uh, Strange things happened to him, but, but that nevertheless he was more free than some other people were to to discuss the the issue and and to and to talk about um, his particular experience. So, uh, so were you? Uh, I don't know. I suppose in a way, a lot of these fellows were leaned on at least not to talk about this. And of course, many said they simply were told not to talk about the incident. Well, I'll tell you this. You know, I know for a fact uh, that a lot of the people that were involved in this situation were attacked in some form or another. And that is the reason that you have even generals that do not want to speak because they have something that has pressured them to keep, uh, you know, put in a situation where they can't speak or want to speak. Yeah. And, you know, and when you're in a situation that involves yourself and your life and the life of your family, you change, you change things. 
That's right. Yeah. But I have never changed in the last 33 years or since 1980, 1980 December 28. My facts and my theory have never changed. I have been the person I always have been. Mm-hmm. I have honesty and integrity, yep. and could care less what uh, uh, wish. Uh, what do you call them? The uh, wayfarers and those people that have never been there and done that. They don't know what they're talking. Yeah, that's very true. Okay, uh, now the explanation that, that you give, uh, if, if you're correct, that it was really Soviet technology people were seeing. I mean, I can understand why that would be terrifying. To well, uh, it was. You know, that was my theory. I did not know for sure, but I do know from, from talking uh, with Colonel Halt and talking with Larry Warren, I mean Larry and, uh, not Larry Warren, but uh, another Larry, uh, I had talked to mainly just with uh, Peterson, and uh, I had talked with, uh, I talked to them not, all, not often, but every once in a while, maybe once a month or so, I might call them and talk to them, uh, John Burroughs and him. John Burroughs came down and we did a did a uh, uh, recording with uh, uh, a lady I can't think of her name. Right uh, Linda, now, Mo- Linda Bolton Howe. Linda, yeah, Linda, Linda Howe. Yeah, yeah, we did something with her, and I don't know what happened to all that stuff, but she's got it posted of what I said. On no, she gave most internet. of that to us. She's yeah. one of our she's one of our co-hosts uh, right. every once in a while. Yeah, and uh, she knows, and, and I told her a lot of things, and it's just I mean it's open fact. People want to see it and hear it. They can tune in, like you said before, on the Internet. They can find anything they want, yep. what I've said and what I've done. Yeah. And I will say this, that the people that are saying that Colonel Halt had something to hide uh, or he didn't record all this stuff, he just made it up, that's a bunch of hogwash. They might lie to me, put it like he, he reported out there that night, and he told me before we ever went out there, he had one, but he said, I don't know how much it takes yeah. that one that's hard enough, but I'm going to probably do just segments of what's most important that we can find at the time and hope we'll have enough tape by the, uh, have enough on it by the time yeah. we get back well we found Colonel Halt always to be very straightforward very uh, come across she comes across very honestly in everything he says and uh, certainly very courageous and in our opinion all you fellows were true American heroes that um, you know I don't that, that's something that I don't understand though you know I don't consider myself a hero I did a job I mean I was just like if I worked in a in a, a cotton candy factory. If they told me to do something, I did it. Yeah. And you know, my job was to go out there and, and try to take some photos, and and we did. In fact, that's a point that needs to be checked. Okay. It's because we did. T- they, I took photos. I don't know of anybody else out there that had a camera that night. Right. I don't even think. Uh, I don't even think Photo Lab was notified. Okay. And um, Monroe, we have a caller. Um, yeah. Sure. We have Scott from Uxbridge, Massachusetts. Uh, okay. Hello, Scott. Good evening. How are you, sir? Good evening. You have a question for Monroe Nevels? Whoa. Whoa, that was, that was a harsh one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you might have uh, your radio up over there, so just turn that down a little bit. Cause no, I, I already turned it off. Oh, well, that's weird. Okay, oh, there must be uh, uh, interference from evil government forces. No, no, no. That could be the FBI or the CIA. Who knows? Who knows? Either or, you know. Right. Uh, well, here, here's my thought. Uh, that, you know... We always use math to go to, say, the moon. But what if people who are coming over here are not using math? What is? What if it's like, say, a plant-based idea? Okay, we're going to use we're going to use plants to generate energy to come over here. It has nothing to do with math. Do you follow? I'm going with this. No, 
Monroe? I'm not quite understanding where he's coming from on that question, uh, but what I would say is that, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious that we, as uh, in America, around the world, we don't have the technology to do some of these things. We just don't have it. So it has to come from something of a higher intelligence. Do you think that if the Soviet Army uh, now, or Russian Army, had something to make it better, don't you think they would be doing it by now? You see, when the FB-111 came out, uh, when we built it in Fort Worth, Texas, and it wasn't long before the Soviet Union had a, a one almost like it, but it was a lot smaller. When, when the space shuttle was built, Russia built one, too, from our technology, just a little bit smaller. Yeah. So we have been the leaders in the United States. But we don't have the technology today to do that stuff. Or the money like to build stuff like that either. Money, you know. yeah. So where does it come from? That I don't know. Mm. Scott? I would, I would be the first to say I'm not going to okay. dispute it, you know, yeah. because uh, I'm a Christian. I know that all things are, are there for our good. And to say that there's not anything on the, uh, on, uh, somewhere else, maybe there is. But well, I guess what, I mean, what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say is that what if, if instead of math and science, it's actually from another planet that people we're being visited from aren't using what we would use as technology as opposed to, okay, there are different types of, let's say, a vegetation type of thought, and that would get us where we want to go. What we understand as technology is math and science. However... Uh. Anyone who can come over here may be using something completely different. Oh, I see where you're going, yeah. Well, this is what many of the other witnesses say. This is why Monroe is different. And we take him seriously because he was right smack in the middle of the thing. Okay. So, I mean, it's it's, it's all a matter of opinion, really, when you get down to it. Right. It's a matter of opinion. And, you know, and I don't know anything about, you know, things like that. But I would say this to you and anybody else, that if you were there, if you were there that night and you saw what we saw, you'd be scratching your head today still wondering what happened. What was it? We don't know. And we may never know. But then again, if it's wanted, as I recall the crop fields and, I mean, the the, the sites that are in other parts of the world, prehistoric, you know, uh, around the world, that have the, the landings and all this stuff. Where did that come from? They certainly wasn't smart enough. Yeah. Okay. You know, uh, where did there it any... come from? Scott, any uh, any other thoughts? No, no. It's just that I think that, like, what your guest is talking about is very valid. I just think that maybe we start, we we need to start looking at it on a different level. Oh, yeah. That's I mean, so we, we, we've looked at the possibilities over the whole course of our 30 hours on the air on this subject has been uh, looking at the multiversal possibilities. Are they using this? And one of the witnesses says they, he saw aliens. Well, yeah, there, I, I mean, one. it's like it's not like they, they're exactly like us. I mean, suggesting well, let, that... Let me, let me ask, interrupt here a minute and ask uh, yeah. a caller question. you have any ideas? In the, uh, do you have anything that you can put on the table that would, would uh, uh, came from the theory? In other words, your theory hasn't been tested, has it? No. Yeah. Okay. Is, is he asking so it, that it, question? It's just, it's just a theory. And nothing becomes out of that theory unless it has been 
tested over and over I, and over again. So let's say that we're with our simple mind, we can't, we can never find that technology. They've already got it, and you know, and why would they be coming to Earth? I don't know. You know, I don't know I mean, questions. I really don't understand and don't don't particularly care unless unless it has to do with family. See, my job all, all my life, is, uh, from well, I'll say not all my life, but from 66 on, 1966 on, has been observance and trying to take care of my fellow man. And I do that. I don't need to know all this other stuff to do that job. Now, why they come and why they go, I don't know. I just know they came. <laughs> I know they were here. Yeah. And whatever they or that or was, I don't know. But, you know, I, I accept it as fact. I don't disagree. Uh, you know, I can't see where it would benefit me to find out all that stuff, so I don't do it. And I'm not a UFOologist like a lot of folks are. I'm just a person that's an observer, simple-minded, just an observer, and then sit back and think about what I have seen. Because it's like this. You have an aircraft accident out there, and you've got two or 300 people, and all 300 people saw the same aircraft crash. And you'll have three hundred different opinions about what happened <laughs> until yeah. Yeah. until the, the initial flash is over. The, the aircraft is down; it's been checked and tested, and everybody seems to forget it. And yeah. that's where it went. All right. That's the same thing. With, okay, with well, we're we're running out of time here, but the, Scott, right. thank you for your call. As always. All right, hey, I'm not I'm not questioning what your your guest oh, saw. I'm just trying to you know. As you and your, excuse me, as the two of you would always say, hey, let's look at it at a different angle. That's sure. all. Yeah. Right. That's all. Well, well, okay. Well, that's what we're trying to do tonight. Is because of you, the rest. A lot of the Rendlesham shows were not on this station, so people would have to go to the podcast if they can. But we, oh, we've, gotcha. we've looked at gotcha. every aspect of this thing in thirteen different ways. Uh, sure. who, uh, time travelers, aliens, this that, and the other. And Monroe is a little different because he believes it was. Uh, terrestrial technology, at least what he saw and, and where it came from ultimately, I see what he's saying. But again, as we, as we always say on this show, everything we know is wrong and we really don't know anything for sure, so it's the first day of school. So That's right. There we are. All right, cool. Okay, well, thank you very much, Scott. Have a good one, Scott. Hey, you guys have a good night. Thank you. Okay. Monroe, I guess we're kind of running out of time here and we have st- still have some more questions that we didn't get to, but thank you. For being I with us, it's it. it's always enlightening, and we're we're always impressed again by your your honesty and your um, and your candor. And uh, thank you again for your your long service to the country. Indeed, and we will be in touch as we always are off the air because we're good friends, and uh, we'll um, talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Right. I'm thank you very much. You okay, Monroe Nevels, everyone. Uh, RendlesshamForestIncident.com is a great place to look at it. It's all over the internet. And again, that Halt tape, Colonel Halt's tape uh, with Monroe on it as a somewhat younger man in 1980 is available on the internet. Check YouTube and you can do a search on the Halt tape or Colonel Halt tape or the Rendlesham tape, anything like that. And you'll come up with the whole thing and it's uh, quite enlightening, quite uh, uh, amazing to listen to them as they experience this, uh, making this recording. So, here we are. We're just about out of time. And, Ben, take it away with the announcements. Okay, so, don't forget that we are going to be doing a speaking engagement in Torrington, Connecticut on Thursday, July 19th, as part of the town's Summer Author Expo from 5 to 9 p.m. at Torrington Public Library, 12... 
Still don't know how to pronounce that. Dacoten looks like to De- me. Dacoten Place. Uh, uh, so check online at www.torringtonlibrary.org. So we are also speaking near the site of the Rendlesham Forest incident in Woodbridge, Suffolk, England, on September 22nd to the benefit of local charities. And in Warwick, Rhode Island, on October 28th, we'll be speaking there as well. We will present the Exploring the Paranormal with CBS Radio's Paul and Ben Eno. So watch for more info on those events at www.behindtheparanormal.com. And just a reminder that you can get all sorts of information at BehindTheParanormal.com, our show website. Uh, Future guests, past guests, and of course, almost 400 free podcasts, including the Rendlesham series that we did. That's in a separate page, but look for the link, and you'll be able to find out everything you ever wanted to know and things you don't want to, didn't, didn't want to know about this case. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it. So don't forget the nearly 300, uh, 400 free podcasts at www.behindtheparanormal.com. Yeah, they're multiplying exponentially. Mm. So many thanks to our producer, uh, who was, of course, uh, dear old Ben himself. Yeah, uh, I'll be sticking around for a while, so you better get used to me. Yeah. (laughs) And we'll see you next Monday, July 16th, right here on WON 1240 AM and com. when Ben and I will welcome Dr. Nancy Clark, who says she has returned from the dead twice. Mm, wow, regular Lazarus. So on our regular CBS radio edition on Sunday, July 15th in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle, we'll welcome back popular guest Murray Silva to continue our discussion about his own encounters with ghosts. And we leave you this evening with a quote from none other than John Lennon, Living is easy when your eyes are closed. So thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we will see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.